And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I know I said we weren't going to have a show. And then things just kind of worked out, and now we've got a show. This is pre-recorded. Welcome, everyone. We are live from the bunker. My name is Jason Hunt. I am the editor here at Sci-Fi for Me. We're live-ish. We're pre-recorded because it worked out that uh, we're able to have a guest to follow up a little bit more on what's been going on in uh, the role-playing games. So we'll get to that in a minute. If you uh, want to listen to us as a podcast, we're on a number of different players, and uh, of course, we do have all of the social media. You can uh, find us over there, and your comments are always welcome, either uh, here on the different video platforms we're on, or uh, through email, live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com. So let us take a look at where things stand with this whole Gary Gygax TSR Dungeons Dragons thing. Joining me today, our special guest, Neon from Clownfish TV. Welcome, sir. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Turn that on. Okay, now we go. <laughs> I buried hey, I you. buried you in the music bed, so sorry. That's okay. A lot of people <laughs> like to bury me. Uh, how's it going? Uh, it's good. Is that a long list yet? It's getting longer daily. Yeah, I, I've lost count of how many angry mobs uh, we we have now. We've been doing this for like four years, and it seems like every week we we pick up some new uh, new fans, new fan club. Yeah, I uh, it's it's one of those weird things, and I when when this when this whole thing started, and actually I I caught I caught this because you had posted that TSR was coming back and you were surprised. Uh-oh. And I thought, well, hey, this is, you know, I played D&D when I was a kid. This would be kind of a fun thing to do. So I reached out to him and I said, you know, we've got this show and would Ernie want to come on and talk about what's what's in the pipeline? What are you guys working on? And mm-hmm. he's like, yeah, sure, no problem. And so we do this thing and I didn't think anything of it until the comments started to roll in and then it was suddenly, well, what does, what does Ernie mean by that gender identity thing? And I went, uh Oh, <laughs> and, <laughs> the, and the bell, <laughs> the bell started going off and the red flags flew up and I thought, Oh no, this is going to be the one. This is going to be the one. And, and sure enough, it, we broke Twitter with it. Yeah. Uh, hopefully you guys haven't gotten too many, too much uh, uh, pushback for that. Cause, we actually know, haven't. I've been surprised because uh, most of the comments, you know, all, all of it has been relatively civil and cordial to each other as far as discussions and conversations that are actually happening. Mm-hmm. And occasionally there'll be a question thrown our way. Why didn't you ask this? Why didn't you follow up on this? And the nature of the way we do the show, it's just kind of this free-for-all stream of consciousness conversation. There's no real structure to it. Yeah. So yeah. as Ernie keeps talking, you know, sometimes I miss an opportunity because I can't jump in and say, hey, let me ask you about this. Let's circle back because that suddenly breaks the train of thought and everybody knows, you know, loses right, right. where they are. But other than that, we haven't really gotten any spillover as far as, you know, our channel is toxic or whatever, ever like that. I Maybe it's coming, but hopefully, you know, so far we've been able to avoid it. Uh, yeah yeah so uh i have i have a thought i have a thought about this because you know we we fell backwards into you know run in well by we i mean i mean me uh i i whacked the beehive with the tabletop community because i I, and i really didn't mean to i just um i'm a lapsed player i I played D &D and ad and d heavily in the late 80s and early to mid 90s and of course, you know, life got in the way, you get yeah. older, you get married, you have kids, you start working, so you don't have as much time for it. And the last year or two, I've been wanting to go back to that. My kids have, have shown interest in wanting to do more tabletop gaming. So I'm like, okay, cool. Let's, uh, let's circle back around to, to D&D and see where things are at. And, uh, you know, as much as we've covered comics and the situation with comics and Star Wars and the animation industry and all these other things... I was 
uh, blissfully unaware of <laughs> the state of tabletop gaming. Yeah, I had no idea that uh, things were the way that they were right now. And, um, you know, I should have had some indication because I'd heard about um, who was at the quartering that mm-hmm. he had an altercation at a bar for uh, you know, Gen Con. Right. And right. Uh, so, I mean, that should have, and that's the only time I've ever heard of a, a YouTuber being uh, assaulted for having dissenting opinions, you know, physically assaulted. Yeah. So I was kind of like, well, it should give me some warning. Well, um, and, and you think about, you know, how how infrequently we hear about something like that happening. I mean, that seemed yeah, yeah. at the time when, when that happened. I remember because uh, I found the quartering when he was talking about back when he was unsleeved media and he was talking about all that stuff that was happening with the judges at Magic mm-hmm. the Gathering. And it was after that that I think he became a target and then that's what they, that thing happened at Gen Con. But I didn't yeah, yeah. I didn't connect – what happened at Gen Con with anything having to do with gaming so much outside, you know, Magic the Gathering and maybe some stuff that he said about, you know, some some uh, cosplayer or something that was going on at the time. I didn't even connect yeah, that it could it have was, anything yeah. to do with gaming at all. And when that happened, I was like, well, you know, that's an outlier. It's one, you know, this right, thing right. happens. But it seems to be a little bit more of an example of, of wh- how, what this culture has devolved into over there. And it surprised me as, as much as well, because I'm like, are these, are these people really that toxic? I, I was for, I mean, look, we have, you know, Clownfish TV, we've been doing YouTube for about four years now. We have almost 3000 videos. I guess we talk a lot. Um, the <laughs> most downvoted, the most pushback we've ever gotten uh, the most downvotes on the video was one where I, I was talking about uh, Dragonlance, the Dragonlance creators, and you know, kind of poking fun at Critical Role and that whole scene uh, because they were in the middle of a lawsuit, you know, with Wizards of the Coast. And oh my God, you yeah. know, the blowback I, I got from that. But that wasn't even what really nailed it for me that that this this scene was was really bad. Uh, it was you know just wanting to get back into tabletop and making a couple of offhand remarks about like, wow, this is weird. Why are orcs racist again? I don't understand why, Yeah, what, this is dumb. And you're not allowed to say that, that this is a dumb thing. Cause this, you know, people are like, this is their life now is yeah. trying to how change. Much, how much of this, gaming. yeah. How much of this do you think is generational. I mean, I'm 51. I, I, you know, I started playing D and D when I was 10 and, and it has changed a lot. Of course, you know, you got Wizards mm-hmm. of the Coast that owns it now. Hasbro is involved in all of that, but how much of this maybe is influenced by stuff like critical role, like uh, Will Wheaton's tabletop, for example, because suddenly, you know, back when, back when we were kids, we were all outcasts, you know, yeah, because yeah. we, yo, you like, you like Batman, you like Spider-Man, you like Star Trek. Mm. We're going to beat you up in the playground type of thing. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, I tell the story when I was in second grade, I got beat up because I was a big Spider-Man fan. And it was, it, it didn't have anything to do with who we were as, you know, the type of person we were, white, black, brown, you know, tall, skinny, fat, whatever. It had yeah. to do with the fact that we were, you know, we were the geeks, we were the nerds, and you go sit over there on that table at the corner and don't bother us, type of thing. And now, it's all, it's all mainstream. It's cool to be a geek. You've got millions of people that watch the Marvel movies. They don't read the comic books, but they think they, yeah. you know, they're fans. And okay, you're fans. You know, everybody's at a different level. And I guess. I'd never really had thought about role-playing games being that same way where you have the normal people, the regular, you know, John Q. Public citizen now has an interest in this kind of stuff. I didn't realize that that role-playing games had gained that much traction in terms of popularity, attention, well, now it's cool to be a gamer type of thing. It really surprised me. I, I don't – here's the thing. I don't think John Q. Public is really all that interested in tabletop gaming. Um, I think it's more mainstream than it was. I think, you know, shows like Stranger Things obviously have, you know, 
kind of renewed interest in it. Uh, but you mentioned, you know, critical role and, and Will Wheaton and all of that. And I'm not trying to, and people keep thinking, you know, anytime I, I criticize what they're doing or, 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 or I guess the direction that, that they've sort of, uh, you know, led the audience in, that I'm being hypercritical of them. Like you said, when Hollywood got involved, and this is across the board, this is not yeah. just tabletop. This is comics. This is animation. This is movies. Um, this is video games. When Hollywood kind of glammed it up, you started to attract another audience. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm definitely not saying that's that's a bad thing, but Critical Role tapped into, uh, I think, the like the Tumblr... Twitter stand culture, the right. the hyper fan. So in, in some levels, I think it is a generational thing. Um, but the thing is, is, is Tumblr, uh, you know, we learned is sort of ha- was ground zero for a lot of the stuff we're seeing going on in pop culture right now, where it was this intersection of uh, really, really, uh, I'm using air quotes, dedicated fans, <laughs> let's put it, obsessive fans, uh, well, I like I like your I like your your word hyper fan because it, yeah. it almost it's that it's almost a, a frenetic type of energy that they invest into this kind of thing, especially the shippers. Um, you see, yeah. you know, with Raylos is you know is a good example of that. You know, wanting to have this this perceived relationship between Ray and and Ben Solo in the Star Wars movies, and you're like, wait, you realize they could be cousins, right? <laughs> this is an abusive relationship. You really want to have that out there as an example of what you want in a relationship because that's kind of that's kind of sideways. But you've got that um, – and like you said, with the Tumblr stuff, as, and yeah. we noticed – well, at least I noticed that as soon as Tumblr got rid of the porn, mm-hmm. they all went over to Twitter. Yep, and – you can track the, I guess, the progression, same basic crowd of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they started out on, uh, you know, web boards and then they moved into like live journal. That was a thing for a while. Right. And then they moved on from live journal into uh, Tumblr. And Tumblr was actually a good platform when it first started, especially for artists and cartoonists to be able to share work. But things get weird. They always get weird when you get obsessive people in there and and you start to intermingle uh, you know, this obsessiveness and they're as obsessive a lot of times about politics or, uh, you know, their, their, you know, belief system as they are about their, the things that they're fans of. So you could honestly say that they are, you know, fans equally, or if not more so of, of politics, yeah. um, as they are of whatever movie or, you know, TV show or whatever they like. And you get that it, it becomes a very, uh, heated, <laughs> heated environment. <laughs> and like you said, they got rid of the porn. So that was part of it. And part of it, I think they're just cracking down. They wanted to go legit. And then they all moved over to Twitter, but it's the same mentality. It's basically, and I think, you know, you talk about outsiders and how a lot of us were outsiders too. I, a lot of these people, I, I honestly do believe they are outsiders, um, you know, in their own space. Uh, but instead of, I guess, I, I guess they're being more proactive in uh, trying to, in their minds, prevent bullying. In our case, we just got beat up and you learn how to throw a punch, right, after it happens to you right. so many times. Yeah. In their case, uh, we've got a bunch of people that are so worried about being bullied that they proactively, and I don't even know if they realize it in some cases, they become the bullies. They become the gatekeepers. They become the very thing that they accuse you know, a lot of us of being, and, and the, the worst example I, I saw of it during this whole thing was this one guy who was, you know, posting about how the entire industry needed to put up like a protective wall to keep out anything TSR and to keep out all the, all the crazy white dudes that were going to take, take over the industry again. I it saw like, that. What the hell? Yeah. I, that was, that was just weird to see, uh, mainly because it was like, oh, hold on. You're, you're basically becoming the thing that you are complaining about in terms of, you know, this is this is what you say you don't want in your fandom, and yet this is how you're acting in the fandom. You're you're becoming the gatekeeper. Um, yeah. There's that there's that four panel cartoon, uh, oh, and yeah. I don't yeah. know who di- I don't know who did this, so I can't credit. I don't know where this came from. 
but it's this, you know, you don't fit in here. We'll make our own space. And then the, they invade and say, you don't fit in here anymore. And it's this cycle of, of, of behavior. This pattern repeats itself. We go from one fandom to the next fandom yes. to the next fandom. Star Wars, Star Trek, Doctor Who, mm-hmm. D, uh, D&D, um, Warhammer, World of Warcraft. I mean, you know, pick your fandom. This, this eventually will happen, it seems. And I think now, finally, some people are starting to push back a little bit. But I remember seeing an interview, uh, an article in Inverse. And they were talking mainly about uh, the brigading of Gina Carano and the Star Wars stands, the Raylos and all of that. Yeah, and yeah. it came out in that article that a majority of people that are using Twitter are between 15 and 17 years old. And the light mm-hmm. just kind of ping. And I was like, yes, that makes absolutely total sense because of the level of emotional maturity that we see in Twitter – that yeah. does kind of feel like they're all fifteen-year-olds, even even the you know even the fifty-year-olds that should know better. Yeah, and it, it's weird because you know we saw this in comics too, where you had a lot of you know kids basically you know brigading people, and then then you would get older pros kind of you know dogpiling too because they wanted to be one of the cool kids, right? You know, and and so I mean, even part of me is like. The people that are doing the brigading, do they do they really feel this way, or is it just really easy to do because you're you're on the internet, you're hiding? Like, would this person tell you to your face? Now, in pay, the the um, the case of the the quartering, you know, he actually got punched in the head by a guy who told him he was going to punch him in the head, and it wasn't just yeah. talk. It was like I'm going to track you down and hit you, and he did exactly that. Um, you know, so I mean, it's kind of like one of those things where. You know, part of me is like, well, you can just kind of laugh it off and be like, oh, they're just a bunch of kids. Don't pay attention to them. But then the other hand, I'm always like, well, I don't know. Yeah. Sometimes people take it over to the real world and it's it's kind of nuts. Well, and, and the other part of that, and and you have had some time in comics and and have have been in that world and you have people that are, are still over there, I, I think. And mm-hmm. you look at who's running things. You know, the Heather Antoses and, and the, the, you know, Sana Anamats and, and you look at the age of the yeah. editors and the assistant editors and they're children. They're in their 20s. They're, you know, mid-20s, late 20s. How do you have the life experience yet to be in this kind of position of control over so much in, in terms of what comics are, are doing? You know, we need... A Jim Shooter, for example, we need somebody who's, you know, 40s and 50s who can who can sit there and say, okay, this is a business. We're going to run it like a business. And I'm if I ran across this article on Salon from John Tynes, who was talking about his time in the beginning days of Wizards of the Coast. Mm. And I don't know if you'd seen this describing the environment that uh, that Peter uh, Atkinson was trying to put together there, being this new type of corporate environment, you know, uh, you know, open marriage, everybody can have sex with everybody else. And I thought, wait a minute, hold on, that's ah. that's not <laughs> well. It's you know, it's it's a hippie commune type of thing, right? And you can't run a business like that. And they've and they've. They learned that fairly quickly, and of course, you know the corporate mentality comes in and and destroys everybody's you know utopian notion of we're going to change the system, and mm. you become the system. You become part of what what it is you're trying to fight. I mean, George Lucas ran into the same thing when he started Lucasfilm to get away from the studio system, and he becomes yeah. the studio. So it it just it floors me that you have these people who who become the thing what they complain about. Yeah, and it's weird how that works out. Uh, you know, in the case of comics, I think you know I've said this before, and I don't think it's controversial to say, but I think you get what you pay for. I think the reason you're not seeing older, experienced veterans is because a lot of them at this point have moved on into other industries. They moved sure. on to Hollywood doing storyboarding. They moved on to video games. They've decided to go write books, you know, actual books, not comic books. They're doing other things because yeah. comics never, even during its heyday, never paid 
terribly well compared to other industries. And frankly, it's not worth the hassle. So what you're left with, you know, when you look at the declining sales is you're getting kids fresh out of college. They're yeah. willing to work for, I've heard what, $30,000, $35,000 a year in Manhattan mm. for a Marvel editor. I mean, what? Like you could go work at Lowe's in the Midwest and make more money. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, what? What are you doing? Well, and you talk about sales. You know, we've talked about it here uh, in a couple of places where the the missed opportunity of the marketing synergy that you could have because I've I've never understood why Marvel didn't put some kind of comic book display in every lobby of every movie theater where their movies were showing. You know, hey, this is an Iron Man movie. Now, hey, look, here's the Iron Man comic book, and here's the story. And I get it. You don't get the same because they were changing everybody, gender and race and all of that mm -hmm. at the time. I mean, you go to see the Thor movie, and you go look up the comic book, and you've got Jane Foster there. But there's it's it seems to me that if you're going if you're going to make this media thing based on source material, you might also want those fans to cross over and engage in the source material. And I've never understood why they've, why they've never done that. It's Disney just, doesn't it's care about comic books. Well. At all. Yeah. They, I, I worked on Disney comics for years, and they always license them out to basically whatever sucker is willing to take a chance on them. <laughs> Uh, they, they don't care about comic books. They never cared about comics. It was never about the comics. Yeah. Um, you know, they basically got, they wanted the movie IP, they wanted the characters and they got saddled with the publishing company. And, um, you know, I actually had somebody I talked to from, uh, Disney worldwide publishing a number of years ago who told me, I mean, this is like four or five years ago. And they were like, there's going to come a day where Disney is just going to stop publishing Marvel comics themselves because it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. You know, every other every other license. I mean, I worked on Scrooge McDuck comics for a number of years for different publishers. They always licenses out, let the licensee take the risk, let them pay Disney for the honor of uh, publishing their stuff. But right. Disney, you know, they don't have any risk at all. They don't have to deal with the contractors. They don't have to put any money up front. Right. Um, they just, you know, collect the collect the check. So, you know, I think it's just they're letting it atrophy. And it's the same, we're seeing this with, with DC. It's being sped up because of, you know, all the acquisitions and reorganization and all that. But I think there is going to come a day in the very near future where Marvel and DC Comics, as we know them, no longer exist. They're not willing, they're not going to go put a, another senior editor in it, you know, mm -hmm. $100,000, $200,000 a year to babysit a dying industry. It, you know, it's just not going to happen. How how much do you think that tracks along with what Eric Larson was saying about um, the bigger publishers eventually going just to reprints and they don't do anything original? Because you're right, it, it's something we've talked about. You know, I mentioned it uh, on this show. The idea of um, the the media side of things takes takes a, a higher priority over the actual source material it's coming from coming from and you know the comics are the same way the D D is the same way i i expect if there was ever any kind of magic the gathering show or movie it would be the same kind of thing where all of the emphasis all of the focus would be on the media and mm -hmm. not on what that media is based on is yeah, well, is, a... is larson on to something here where he's saying that there, everything's going to be pencils down soon Oh, of course he is. Uh, look, he's been in the industry a long time. Everybody talks. I mean, they, you want to know how people get blacklisted so easily in the comic book industry? <laughs> it's small. It's full of miserable people, and they all talk. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Eric Larson is probably talking to people pretty high up the food chain at Marvel and, D and or DC, um, or at least getting that information from somebody. He's been doing this for a long time. What's interesting is that guys like Eric Larson were in denial for the longest time that there was a problem, you know, and now all of a sudden he's coming around saying like, yeah, yeah, you know what? They might just shut it all down. If you said that four years ago, they would call you a Nazi and, and try to get you kicked off of Twitter, kicked off of YouTube, thrown out of conventions. Well, you know, and just that for, actually Just happened. for saying that this, yeah. Yeah. Cause Ethan, uh, Ethan Van Skyver was saying that about DC is, is yeah. as far back as what, three years ago. Yeah. He's probably talking to the same people. Yeah. Um, yeah, everybody talks. I mean, that's like I said, that's that's how these blacklists 
work and really it is kind of a control thing to, you know, anytime somebody comes and they start talking about an industry as being a quote unquote community, mm. I immediately, and, and I never used to be this way. It's only been the last couple of years, right? Immediately my, my guard is up because I'm like, oh, community implies yeah. gated community. Uh, we control who gets to live here, who gets to work here. Um, you got to pay your dues with the homeowners association, you know, commune community, uh, not industry. So when somebody's like, well, we don't want those kinds of people in our community, it means we've got this idealized version of what it means to be in the comic book or gaming business. And right. we're going to just by its very nature, exclude certain kinds of people. We don't want the riffraff coming into our gated community. I was talking with um, uh, the guys over at uh, Angry Wargamer podcast Saturday night. We got to talking about mm -hmm. this. And <clears throat> you look at these groups that do this, and it's almost like a religion uh, at, yeah. at some point. You have a belief system. You have a creed. You have rituals. You have ceremony. You have symbols. You have those things what get said a certain way to certain people, and it and – it, it it's it's kind of scary almost because it's it's you know almost cult like in some cases where people are so rabidly invested in it whether it's they really believe it the true believers are the ones that are most dangerous but the other ones that are going along in order to not get a target on their back are are almost yep. as bad and I have to wonder when the bottom is going to fall out on all of this stuff. When when people are going to sit there and say, okay, enough is enough. We kind of got a little bit of an indication on that when Gina Carano got fired because yeah. she didn't back down. She said, I'm not in the wrong here. And mm -hmm. people rallied around her. And, and I think we saw people outside of Star Wars fandom – start to take a little bit of a look and say, okay, hold on, what's going on? And then the Mulan thing and, and the, the mask on Disney is starting to come off a little bit. Yeah. But I wonder if it's too little too late. Um, you know, it's funny you say almost a cult. Uh, I mean, <laughs> by its very, <laughs> if you actually look up, you know, the, the uh, indicators of, of whether or not your group is a cult, I think a lot of these communities these professional communities would absolutely fit the bill because yeah, if you don't recite the right words, if your doctrine is not pure, uh, you know, if, if you're saying the wrong things, sending the wrong message, associating with the wrong people, you get excommunicated, you get shunned. In this case, they just try to you know shut off all means of, of money to you. And they're perfectly justified in doing so. Mm -hmm. You know, they're perfectly justified in, in hitting you in the head with a stone because you're a bad person. Yeah. And, and you need, you know, it's, it's better that you're not here than to have you here and run the risk of, of tainting the rest of the, the flock, you know. Uh, so it is absolutely a, a cult. And I think what's going on now is the media, and we talk a lot about this, it, Twitter and the media are essentially one and the same. Mm -hmm. Like Twitter is designed for journalists. I mean, look at the majority of the blue checks on Twitter. Yeah. The, you know, the journalists hang out and a lot of them, same thing. They're young, fresh out of college, uh, idealists, and they get into a publication and then they start, you know, reciting Twitter talking points and whatever. And a lot of older executives marketing people, these companies or whatever. And I, we just did a video today talking about how the uh, Netflix Shira show keeps gaming Twitter to try to artificially inflate its popularity. And it's so easy. Like th these, these kids know how to do it. They've done it so many times. Yeah. It's the same with the cancellation of Gina Carano. They made those hashtags trend to get their friends in the media to pick up on the hashtag. So executives thought, oh my God, the pub, there's massive public outcry about Gina Carano. We have to fire her when it really, it could have just been a couple of dozen Raylos, yeah. you know, that it, were bored and had a bunch of old accounts. It's, you know? it's weird because back in the day, uh, like when when Star Trek was on the air, for example, the original series, the letter writing campaigns, mm -hmm. uh, 
the conventional wisdom has always been when it comes to letters being sent to the network, and we saw this with Jericho, the you know people sending packs of peanuts, and and there was a letter writing campaign to save Cagney and Lacey. Mm. Um, all of these different things. The conventional wisdom was for every letter that the network received, there are probably somewhere between five and ten people, thirty people that it represented who aren't sending in the letters. And it's almost like the script has been flipped where yeah. you have uh, people people who are doing the hashtags and they're posting and everything. It's just them, but the executives, like you say, think that they're representative of a number of others. And back in the day, it actually was that way where you did have people that weren't sending in letters you know, and, and it was that ratio of one to about 30, one to 50 or whatever. Mm. You know, you did have that correlation, whereas now you don't. There's the assumption that there are this monolithic group of people behind these hashtags. But like I said, it's a handful of people. And how many of them are, are putting together bots and sock puppet accounts and, you know, multiple different usernames? It's the same person. You can, you can game the system so much. And then you look at something like uh, what Barry Weiss uh, talked about in her resignation letter from the New York Times. Mm-hmm. You know, you, the entire editorial board is beholden to these twelve people on Twitter. You know, Richard Meyer talks about it. You know, the twelve angry, twelve angry blue check marks. You know, it's it's a very small group of people, and I keep asking, why are we paying attention to Twitter so much? Why do these companies think that Twitter? matters more than anything else in any of the social media spheres twitter seems to have captured this this sense of duty we must be beholden to the twitterati for some reason and i don't understand where that comes from well it's it's the same group of people that migrated from LiveJournal to Tumblr to Twitter. Now, when they came, just a theory, okay? Twitter used to be fairly reputable, and it used to be a place to go for news bites and information and funny cat videos. (laughs) Uh, When they came in, they basically had the reputation of Twitter. So if you came on to Twitter and you had a blue check and you work for some publication, well, you know, people just kind of assumed you must be an authoritative voice, right? Right. not realizing that at this point, all these crazies from Tumblr had been, you know, coming into Twitter too. Because back in the day, if something trended on Twitter before people figured out how to gain or game the uh, uh, trending, you know, it was legit. It was people were actually talking about it. But now that, you know, and I think a lot of it actually came from, uh, you know, a lot of K-pop stands figured out how to game. Oh, yeah. Trending. It's actually very easy. You just need a bunch of alt accounts. And Twitter doesn't verify or vet like Facebook, like Facebook, you got to be a real person. It's a Mm -hmm. lot harder to just start another. So they're all going to Twitter. Um, But the journalists were already hanging on Twitter and marketing people were already on Twitter. And so what you've got is, so let's say you've got this company, it's been around for years. And, uh, you know, they're trying to get some fresh voices in there, trying to find people there, they'll work for them or whatever. And so you, you hire a new HR person that's maybe pretty hip, fresh out of college. And then that HR person hires a marketing executive to give your brand uh, a fresh new coat of paint, right? Because your sales are, you know, slow or whatever. And that that new marketing person comes in and says, hey, Twitter's talking about this or Twitter's talking about that. Or, hey, I'm going to reach out uh, to my friend over at this this really hip new publication, yeah. you know, Slate or Vox or whatever. And I've got contacts over there. And so the next thing you know, all the people that have the mic, the megaphones at these companies are the same kinds of people. They're all younger people. Um, they're all, a lot of them are networked. You find out, I mean, you really look into it, you're going to find out that a lot of the journalists and the the people that are the loudest in the comic book industry, those people, they all talk back channel. You know, everybody knows everybody. And it's the same with right. journalism too. All these websites, there aren't a whole lot of them. There aren't a whole lot of people that write for them. And, well, and we saw that you know, with you, Gamergate, with the whole Game Journal oh, yeah. Pro thing being blown open and, and exposed. And then, of course, the Whisper Network for the comics stuff. You know, it, it's no surprise now that people do that. Oh, yeah. And it, the mask is, is coming off. But for the longest time, people thought, well, you know, uh, 
you trust your marketing people, you trust your HR people, you trust, you know, journalists, you try, and, and now you're starting to realize that like, well, you could up until a few years ago, but now mm. this new breed of, of uh, hyper fan that's coming in and they're, especially they're attracted to, I guess, um, you know, industries that are either directly in their field of interest or kind of tertiary. And in this case, it's like, yeah, if you're a hyper fan, uh, from Tumblr, you're totally going to be about getting into uh, some pop culture website or working for some convention or, you know, working as a marketing person for some company that's got a lot of, and a lot of it's clout. You know, I want to be the alpha nerd. I want to go right. to my friends on Tumblr and be like, oh, I'm working, I'm working for Wizards of the Coast. Now I get to be the decision maker. I get to put all the press releases out. I get that, you know, and uh, it is kind of, it is a power trip. And you basically have a lot, again, this is personal opinion, just based on what sure, we've seen, but sure. you start to, to dig into it and you realize there are a lot of younger people that are on a power trip and whether the companies hired them because they thought that they need to get fresher voices in there or they were just cheaper, yeah. whatever the, the deal is now they're there, they're all networking together, even with your competitors, you know, and, and if they don't like you, or you turn on them or you try to fire them, then they will use this network to try to just destroy your business. You yeah. know, it's crazy. I remember uh, when I was, when I was going through college and, and the idea of journalism uh, f- very, very, very briefly crossed my mind. And I thought, no, I, I don't, I don't think I want to get into that world. But when I was growing up, <clears throat> we did, book reports in English class. And I had an insight mm-hmm. one time because my sister my sister was a year behind me in school. And when she hit uh, a particular English class, they stopped doing bu- book reports. They started doing journals. How do you feel about things? And, you know, diary type of thing. And it hit me. There is a big difference between reporters and journalists. And all of yeah. these, all of these journalists who go to school because they want to have an impact and change the world. And I thought, wait a minute. Reporters are supposed to be objective, and they and they give you a record of what happened. Reporters are not supposed to be activists to change what happens. And I think when you got into that um, that mindset of I'm I'm going to make a difference. Well, that's not the job of journalism. That's not the job of reporting. No. It, it's it's you you are uh, uh, the paper of record. You are you're providing a, a historical account of events as they play out. You're not supposed to sit there and tell us what we're supposed to think about it, or what you think about it. And if that you know maybe that goes all the way back to to Woodward and Bernstein, and we took down a president and all this other stuff, but the the hyper the hyper fan uh like you're talking about probably has even more of a sense of i can have an impact i can have control because you know in this day and age everything's right there at your fingertips and you can have some kind of an immediate effect because of likes and shares and retweets and all this other stuff and then you got the you know the the dopamine hit, and then it becomes this this cycle of oh well now I can I can actually make a difference, and the activism doesn't necessarily come with a whole lot of rational thought. It seems sometimes. It's just- yeah, I always uh, I tell my wife I said you know all of these these activist journalists now they all think they're Lois Lane but they're they're really Rita Skeeter from Harry Potter, <laughs> you know they're really gossip mongers uh, trying to destroy people's lives yeah. to tell a story and again you know it might just be that especially in the pop culture space you have people that are literally uh, spending all their free time living in fantasy. Uh, yeah. pretending to be heroes, you know, wanting to be heroes, reading about heroes. So they want to be the good guy in their own story. They want to be their own OC. They want to be the, the hero. If they can't be Superman, well, then maybe they can at least help take the bad guys down uh, with a well-written piece like Lois Lane. Yeah. You know? well, and, and um, it's funny you mentioned Rita Skeeter because there are a lot of these people that are big Harry Potter fans, and it's almost like they've never read anything else but those seven books. <laughs> If, if that's your entire frame of reference for how life should be, mm-hmm. um, I got news for you. <laughs> it's, it's, 
like how did how is it that your expectations are formed by that book that series of books maybe it's because you know maybe it's because that first book hit this generation and they grew up reading the rest of them and and it some sort of a not necessarily kind of a mind meld type of thing between the two where you know this is our this is our star wars this is our tolkien yeah. and but the the amount of emphasis that people place on harry potter of all things really surprises me well i think that's why they they lashed out so so hard at, at jk rowling yeah. because they found out oh my god you know she's human <laughs> she's human and she said some things that maybe she you know maybe somebody should have taken the phone away for a couple of days you yeah. know but uh you know she voiced an opinion she's she's and and but the thing is is you see how pa passion can go both ways right you know, they can mm -hmm. have all this passion for a fandom and eat sleep and breathe this this fictitious world and then when it doesn't meet their own expectations how quickly they can scorn it and scorn the creator of it and I think that that's kind of what's going on with Dungeons and Dragons right now is yeah. that, you know, we have people that spend an awful lot of time literally pretending to be somebody else in their own fantasy world. Mm -hmm. And this is their world. And for a lot of people, this is their, this is their hobby. This is what they do. And even if it's been recent last three or four years, you know, they eat, sleep and breathe this other world, this other character that they've created. And um, they think that, you know, the hobby is, is one way, but now it's like, oh no, now we've got, uh, and the only way they can kind of keep it to their, their standards, I believe is to make sure they keep who they, they think are the toxic people out. Yeah. Um, and now we've got, uh, Ernie Gygax and TSR coming back, which raises some questions because they think they've created this, this sort of, you know, impenetrable utopia and this is their space. But now it's like, well, wait a second, your space kind of came at the expense of, uh, maybe some other people who played years ago, but now they don't even recognize what's become, you know, so we want to kind of roll it back and, and maybe, you know, go back to basics, but they're conflating that with, well, let's, let's roll it back to be whiter and more male and more, you know, it's, it's just a very, yeah. it's that sense of justice, that very kind of, I just don't remember sense of justice. I just don't remember gaming being like that. When, no, you know, it's it wasn't. Just, you know, you know, the white male, you know, he man woman haters club type of thing. I was like, that's little rascals. That's not real life. <laughs> you know, we don't. Yeah, well, we, we, nobody was excluded back in the day. You know, if somebody it was if somebody expressed an interest in the game was let them play. Yeah, I, I never got that either. I mean, I can't say, I can't speak to everybody's experience. I don't want sure. to speak to everybody's experience. We've said this before. You know, if you had a bad experience uh, with, with tabletop because there were some people that were jerks, uh, I am very sorry to hear that. But by and large, you know, we were the outcasts. And outcasts tend to, uh, you know, find each other, you know, form, form, you know, if you want to use the expression found families, they do. Yeah. People come together over gaming and we were all kind of outcasts and, and uh, you know, we looked out for each other and, and um, you know, if, if it was exclusionary or felt exclusionary, I, I do believe that this is sort of a newer crew coming in. It's like, I guess mean, what we said before, a lot of people complain. I'm like, were you around in the eighties, nineties? Do, do you, do you remember uh, D and D before wizards of the coast? Because uh, if, if, if your frame of reference is like, you know, stranger things or something, uh, I got news for you that, yeah. you know, it kind of sort of was that way, but not quite. And, uh, you know, same with the, the critical role crowd, that's a whole different crowd. They basically attracted, um, you know, the fanfic fans and mm -hmm. the Tumblr crowd. And a lot of, there are a lot of new people coming to tabletop, but they have a very different, they're coming out from a very different angle than those of us who played it, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, where it was a game. This is more like theater, I think, for a lot of the newer crew. They see Critical Role like, you know, funny, they never die, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they're sort of playing their OCs on YouTube yeah. or whatever. And to them, that's what tabletop gaming is. Uh, so it's a, a very different audience. But for some reason, they believe that a lot of them, not everybody, I won't be very clear, I'm not talking about everybody, but a lot of the more vocal ones seem to think that the only way to keep to keep it that way is to keep out all the, the nasty old people who, right. you know, kept them down back in the 80s when they weren't even there. Let me ask you it, this. You, know? um, you mentioned fanfic um, and, and the 
chatter now with regard to Star Wars with the Acolyte, with Leslie Hillen coming in and saying, you know, the writer's room is being put together. And there's one writer on the staff who's never seen Star Wars. And then you have, you know, Alex Kurtzman. I've been a, I've been a fan of Star, Star Trek all my life and, you know, that. And you have this generation of people who are making the things that we grew up with. You know, J.J. Abrams, uh, Alex Kurtzman, the, the people that are making Star Trek and Star Wars and Doctor Who and all of this. And now, you know, you look at Wizards of the Coast, Critical Role, fans of that thing are now responsible for making that thing. They're custodians mm. of it. Is that necessarily always a good thing? Because it seems to me that maybe we've got some sacred cows that might need to be slaughtered. And you've got people that are thinking, well, you know, it's it's always been this way. And you've got fans who are saying, well, maybe we need to change it up. At what point is it maybe counterproductive to have actual real diehard hyper fans as the custodians of these different IPs, do you think? That's actually a really good question. We, we didn't touch the, um, the Leslie Headland situation. I know a lot of other YouTubers were, were pouncing on it and um, we didn't go there because my wife and I actually talked about it and she's like, I don't really disagree with getting new voices into you know, an aging franchise. Sometimes you do have to mix it up. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think the, the big difference is, you know, can you bring fresh voices to a franchise, keep the essence of the franchise intact, maybe take it in a different direction and do it without insulting the fans along the way. I'm not talking about like, don't rankle them for this decision or that decision, but like literally insulting them or trolling them by, <laughs> you know, killing the sacred cow in front of them and then yeah. laughing about it. And, you know, uh, I always look at the Christmas story with uh, Scott Farkas. Like, well, you going to cry now? Uh-huh, <laughs> you're going to cry? <laughs> you know, yeah. and that's what some of these people do. So, yeah, I don't I don't disagree that, you know, we need to get fresh, fresh blood. Actually, in an ideal world, we would leave those sacred cows where they were when a story had a logical conclusion or a story was very much a product of its time, uh, leave it in the rearview mirror and maybe draw inspiration from it and go create something new. I God, I would love to see some new franchises that could give Star Wars or you know Star Trek a run for their money, but we keep going back to the same well and you're just watering down yeah. the memory as you do that. Is that people hanging on to the things they grew up with maybe and they don't want to let go of that? They don't want to let go of their childhood? I've had, I've had a thought that... Uh, the baby boomers uh, generation, uh, when they were running things, and I know some of them are probably still in charge over at various studios, you get the the remakes and the reboots and the Starsky and Hutch and the Dukes of Hazard and and those things that they're making a new version of it, but they're they're almost they're making fun of it. It's almost like they don't remember what made it work in the first place, but they're going to have fun with it because they still want to be the kid that that watched it. And it feels like sometimes we're we're the people that are that are doing these reboots are remembering the wrong things about why they these particular franchises survived for so long. And maybe it's time for people who absolutely have absolutely nothing to do, no interest in that franchise to to come in and, and work the franchise. Except when I say uh, that, you know, Abrams, Abrams coming into Star Trek, he was never a big Star Trek fan. But, you know, Star Trek 2009, I saw as his Star Wars audition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what it felt like, right? I mean, a lot of these directors, it's like you're only as good as your last movie and you're, you're auditioning for the next the next thing. And that was always, I mean, in the case of Abrams, he always wanted to be the next Spielberg, right? I mean, it's yeah. very, very clear. He, he wants to be Spielberg. And everything he did kind of led up to like, oh, now finally I get – Star Wars, which is about as close to Spielberg as I'm, I'm going to get. If, if they asked him tomorrow, said, "Hey, JJ, you want to make ET two? He'd, he'd absolutely <laughs> be it. all over it. Yeah, E two. You know. Yeah. Um, no, I think. I mean, this is a tough one because I think if you're a custodian of a an established franchise, those fans, because you're banking on those fans, right? You're betting on those fans. Those fans, have, in a lot of cases, kept those franchises alive for years, buying right. merchandise and stuff, even when the show wasn't on the air. You know, we had the merchandise sales and the DVD and the Blu-ray sales and, and all of that. And 
it's because of the continued interest that these studios go back to that well anyway. If there was zero interest in, you know, say just He-Man because they're bringing He-Man back. If He-Man toys hadn't been selling to collectors all these years, mm -hmm. they wouldn't be doing a new show because, you know, they want to sell toys. Um, so I think, you know, you've got two different problems. You've got the 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 fan base that has kept the thing alive. And in many ways, you do owe them the respect that they've kept the franchise alive. They've been putting money in your pockets for decades. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, you know, to attract new fans, you do have to kind of think out, outside the box. And, uh, but what I'm seeing is a bigger problem that Hollywood is not taking chances anymore. Like you're never going to get another, the, I think the reason you talked about, you know, Harry Potter, like Harry Potter is the only thing I can think of that has been about as big as Star Wars since Star Wars. Right. You know, we haven't, we haven't taken any chance. Lord of the Rings blew up for a while, um, obviously. And uh, now that's problematic too, but, mm. but like, where, where is the new stuff? Why, you know, instead of just going back to that, well, cause some things look, they don't age well. Some things you can only make fun of them when you bring them back because they were very much a product of their time. And you might have really fond memories of watching it when you were, you know, nine years old, you watch it at 39, you're like, Oh, yikes. Yeah. yeah. This, wow. This really didn't age well. Um, and then at that point, you just kind of leave it in the, the rearview mirror and, and move on to something else. I mean, I would like to see more entertainment that maybe takes a cue from the things that we grew up with. Because you look at Star Wars and you look at what Spielberg was doing. And that's, that's you know, they reflected what they grew up with. Pulp novels and right. serials and science fiction and Buck Rogers and World War II and, and all of these things, you know, got, got filtered into the movies that made our generation. So where are, why is the record skipping? Why don't we have new movies coming out? Um, you know, is it because we just keep regurgitating the same thing? It's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Yeah. Uh, I would like to see people draw from more life experience and, and give us another star Wars, but you know, are people living as much life as they used to live 50 years ago, you know, to be able to do that? I don't know. Well, and and it seems like some of that is happening over in the comic space now with all of the indie comics uh, creators going to crowdfunding to mm -hmm. do their own thing. I mean, you guys have done it yourself um, with um, oh, was it Shadow, oh, Shadow, Shadow Miters? Yeah, yeah, that was that was kind of a that was kind of an accident. We actually had a web comic years ago, and it was sort of you know just my wife and I just different things that we liked, and we mm -hmm. kind of put into a blender and. And uh, the webcomic took off. And back in the day, we were, you know, doing pretty good. We were getting like a million views a month on it. And we had a literary agent and we had all this stuff going on with it. And there was interest in possible animation. And and then the uh, the switch got flipped at some point. It was around 2013, 2014 that, you know, it, it, we weren't very trendy. Our property wasn't very trendy. But that's a whole nother story. Right. But yeah, um, you know, we actually did a, a campaign for what at the time were leftover books. They were actually from another print run and we still had a bunch of them. And so we sold them on Indiegogo and we had to go back and, and buy 4,000 more copies, <laughs> you know, and so this stuff is like 10 years old. Yeah. So now, because again, financially uh, we can do it. Now we can go back and continue that story because we see that there is enough interest in it to continue um, the story, but yeah, we don't, I mean, I don't have any interest in touching any established IP personally. It's just like, it's just leave it alone, you know? Um, well, and I, I wonder if other things, I wonder if that, if that's where we might see the next, <clears throat> the next star Wars, for example, come out of a crowdfunded project at some point, because as we've seen with Axanar, for example, I mean, $2 million mm -hmm. and they still haven't delivered anything. But it does show that there are people who are willing to put the money into these various different projects they think are worthwhile. I mean, we see with with uh, Ethan doing a million dollars per campaign on Cyberfrog. The money's mm -hmm. out there. The market is yeah. there. So, you know, and with, with technology being the way it is now with CG, it's very easy for somebody with a, with a souped-up desktop tower to do movie-quality... Uh, special effects, visual effects, CG stuff. So it's not that difficult to do 
I would I would expect that at some point we're probably going to start seeing crowdfunded projects uh, that are not necessarily books. They're going to be TV series and animation and and uh, full full feature films. Well, that's that's already happening. I mean, th- those things are obviously a lot more expensive than, yeah. than printing comic books. But I, I think anymore to you know, there's so many options to bypass Hollywood. Like we don't, because Hollywood is stuck in a rut. I mean, they just, yeah. and I think a lot of it is, you know, from a business point of view, you know that there's money coming in from a Star Wars or a Star Trek, whatever. You know that every year you can count on X number of dollars from these properties. So why wouldn't you want to go back out? You know, because you've got the the consumer base, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard to take a chance on something new, but at some point Star Wars was new. Nobody wanted to touch Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, you know, Star Trek was a very, no pun intended, alien concept, you know, to, to get across. And it thankfully worked out well, but there are a lot of things that don't, you know, but then you look at, you know, when you're talking Star Trek, you look at like, you know, Babylon 5 and you look at even the, the reboot of uh, Battlestar Galactica and they took inspiration from Star Trek, but they weren't Star Trek, you know, yeah. but you can see that there was definitely that kernel. So where is the next, you know, like, look, I grew up watching Star Wars. I grew up watching Harry Potter, you know, reading Harry Potter, you know, here's my, and with my own life experience and, and that, that is a base, here's what I would like to be, you know, this generation's uh, Harry Potter. Cause we're never going to get that. We're never going to get that again. If we don't get out of this rut, this creative rut that we're well, in. Maybe, maybe you, maybe that's your next project, the new Harry Potter Wars. Right? <laughs> then I need to stay <laughs> off of Twitter, definitely. Uh, they'll, yeah, they'll, they'll yeah. Cancel, Twitter, Twitter cancel. wars. There we go. Twitter wars. Do a whole, I, do a whole are, thing. Everything is, everything's social media, and and everybody's your, you know, uh, your avatar. Is, well, I guess that's kind of Ready Player One, isn't it? Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, that's that's you know, I was watching Ready Player One, and my son, you know, he loves the book, and you know, my wife and I were watching it. And I'm like, you know, here we are. What, what, when does it take place? Like in 2065 or something like that? And they're still recycling the 80s, mm-hmm. you know, because it's like pop culture peaked in the right. 1980s. That's when we stopped making new things, 80s, 90s. And we've been on repeat ever since for decades. We've been on repeat. Even look at the clothes. Look at that. Like I, I talked to my son about this. I'm like, we got to like the early 2000s and it feels like things just kind of stopped. Like you can't mm-hmm. really tell the difference between the way somebody's dressed in 2017 compared to 2007, where there was a huge difference between 1977 and 1987 and yeah. 1997. Yeah, nobody it's wants like to we innovate. Got, yeah, we just got stuck. Like we're, and I don't know if it's technology has been, you know, kind of a disruptor. It's made us lazy or, or what, but we don't have the the impetus to like make new things anymore. So you get people that are fans of something and they just want to be a part of that thing that they're a fan of. And, but then that just involves just recycling the same stuff. But then you look at Tolkien and you look at Lucas and you look at Spielberg and all these other creators and, and, you know, Gary Gygax and you look at them and how they came up with these concepts is they lived life and they had life experiences and they had other hobbies and other interests that they brought into the things that they created. And we're missing that. We're just getting a bunch of people that aren't really creative. We, we call them repurposers. They're not really creative. They're just kind Mm -hmm. of upcycling or recycling uh, existing concepts and ideas and and properties. Everybody's an imitator. Nobody wants to be an innovator. It's hard. You have to take a risk and people don't like risk because sometimes it blows up in your face. Well, and Uh, we've been watching. No, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, we've been watching this uh, uh, great show on History Channel. It's uh, The Food That Build America. Oh, uh uh-huh. It's fantastic. There's so much you can learn from that. We were watching that, and you see that, like, uh, you know, how these ideas came up, and it was usually competition or necessity. Uh, And, and again, we just, I think people have just gotten soft, so we don't really have Mm -hmm. to make new things, do we? We just get a job working for some company that just repurposes you know, much better ideas from 30 years ago and we just park it there. Well, and you've got the other, the other side of that, you've got a number of people that are, you know, in the YouTube space, like we are, uh, Mm -hmm. that are making inroads that are having an impact, you know, because their, you know, their view count, their subscriber counts are higher than what you would find on a, on a TV show, for example. I mean, um, just to pull one out of the air, Batwoman having, you know, what, 
300,000 viewers and you've got you've got YouTube channels that have you know that much or more looking at these videos that we're making just with our computers at home you know we we don't have the the millions of dollars in in TV broadcast technology but we're still you know we're still having an impact we're still able to do what we do and people are paying more attention to the YouTube space Mm-hmm. than than any time before. Now, are you guys uh, just on YouTube? Do you have an Odyssey channel or Rumble or anything like that? Have y'all decided to go into the alt tech environment uh, yet? No. Um, we've had people ask us about doing Odyssey, and I know you can back your stuff up pretty easily. I just, uh, you know, I guess we're worried about splitting our audience into too many different directions, you sure. know, diluting our audience. And Odyssey, I don't know... Uh, you know, what the financials are like over there. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I hate to sound like a shill, but I'm like, <laughs> you know, if we're going to put yeah. out three or four videos a day, we got to, you know, they got to pay for themselves. They got to pay for our time. And sure. and uh, if we're putting them out there on, you know, a platform like Odyssey and we're not making money on it, then we can't keep doing what we do. So I, I haven't wrapped my head around the whole blockchain thing yet, but I know that's, that's a piece of it. Um, and they just started, we're doing, we're doing the beta side of things as far as live streaming over there because they just opened that Mm -hmm. up here a few weeks ago and one one thing i like about it is i actually have somebody at odyssey that responds to my emails and say okay here i've run into this hey or try this um whereas youtube you don't get that kind of customer support but but yeah you're right it is it is one of those things where the the audience isn't quite there yet Mm. Uh, and you guys, you know, just crossing 200,000 subscribers on YouTube. Congratulations on that. You oh, know, thank, that's, you. thank you. That's kind of a big, a big deal. I don't think all uh, of them are going to move over to Odyssey if you tell them to go over no. to Odyssey, but you probably get some of them. But yeah, we, but that kind of thing, you, you get that track record, you get that longevity. It's hard to give that up. We um, you know, ran to that when we did web comics. We we had our own website, and then we tried uh, moving our content, mirroring our content on the other sites like you know, Webtoon started into Pastic and and all those. Mm-hmm. And we basically found that people stay where they find you. Yeah. So if you're a podcaster and they get used to listening to your podcast, it's going to be kind of hard. To, and we know some people that they do very very well, you know, with their podcast, but they're not able to get people to come over to YouTube to watch them because they're used to just listening to them in their car or whatever, and that's their habit. And it's, it was the same with our comic. It was like, you know, we had a whole new audience that we were kind of building over on these other platforms. But then at that point, we had to manage like three or four different platforms, and we had all these different audiences. And it was like, oh, my God, this is, you know, kind of a kind of crazy. And, and I could see that happening with a video, too. I mean, we tried posting videos on Facebook, too, and that was a totally different thing. And, um you know, Facebook doesn't doesn't pay at all. I mean, Facebook, unless you're like super huge, you don't right. make any money. And they're so ridiculous with their, uh, you know, audio usage over there. Like a lot of the music we had that we had the rights to on YouTube, we'd put videos up over there and they would just blank out the audio because like, oh, you can't play that over here. And I was like, okay. So a lot of consideration. Um, you know, I'm not exactly sure. We're trying to build out from just being a YouTube channel and get more into doing, you know, websites and publishing and, and stuff like that, because now it does seem like Hollywood has noticed and they're starting to push more into YouTube, which means I think they're going to push the use out of YouTube. Yeah. You know. So what's next for you guys? You're, you're working on another another Shadowbinders then is next or or what? Yeah, we've got um, we actually have multiple comic projects we're working on and uh, we're trying to get our we got a couple of websites we're getting off the ground. And um, I don't know. We're still trying to figure this out because. You know, there, there's definitely a huge opportunity out there for people that want to tell new stories. And I, I mean, even like with us, we, we thought about it, it's like, I don't want to, you know, and I've seen a lot of, and this is absolutely no offense to anybody doing any kind of crowdfunding or whatever, but I, I don't want to be like, okay, I'm going to do my version of Spider-Man. I'm just going to, you know, call it something else and, but make it like Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man from the nineties, you yeah. know, and just call it like cockroach guy or something. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I'm just kind of like, okay, so we want to tell different kinds of stories. We want to tell new stories, maybe kind of run it through the filter of, you know, the kinds of stuff that we like, but uh, kind of carve out our own audience. And I think, I think right now the, 
opportunity is there for people to tell new stories. People are just tired. I mean, it's even with us, like we talk about, you know, we complain about Star Wars, we complain about comics, whatever. And I've, you know, after three or four years of doing this, I'm like, nothing is going to change. Right. Nothing is going to change. It's, it's, this is the path that these studios are on. No complaining is going to fix it. The only thing that's going to change is maybe at some point executives working for these companies will wake up and be like, oh, we shouldn't listen to Twitter. We shouldn't listen to the people from Tumblr. We should just, you know, chase the money. And at that point, that audience has probably already moved on. Right. Like you could, you could, you could, I, I'm serious. Like they could turn around and completely retool, say Star Wars or whatever. Well, they, they tried it. They, they had a chance with Mandalorian and, and then the Gina Carano stuff definitely cast a, a, you know, shadow over that. But let's hypothetically speaking, let's say they, you know, do what people want and they get rid of Kathleen Kennedy. And in five or six years, they, they obliterate the sequel trilogy and, and try to come back from that. Is anybody going to care at that point? Or are people going to be so jaded that? Yeah. Well, plus by then you have the people who are so fully invested in defending the Disney sequels that will blow up if you try to erase the Disney sequels. So you're going to, you're just going to have same song, different verse. Yeah, uh, yeah. If you tried to do anything like that, it's just the blowback is going to come from a different sec section of the fandom. Yeah. yeah. And that's it. And when you try to, to cater to, to different audiences and that's, you know, kind of like with the YouTube and the Odyssey and, you know, moving your webcomic around, you're building different audiences. And we see this with like, oh, here's the new version of this IP. Here's the classic version of this IP. We like people that like new Coke. Well, not very many people like new Coke, but some people yeah. like new Coke. And now we had to bring back classic Coke, but now we got new Coke and classic Coke sitting on the shelf together, uh, taking, and, and people just get fed up and they just go buy Pepsi, you know? Right. And I, I think that's, that's kind of the place we're getting to right now where people are going to, I think they're getting fed up with the drama, fed up with the constant reboots and Hollywood tinkering and the disrespect uh, toward fans and the drama and just be like, let's just, let's turn the TV off. Maybe read a book. Let's maybe go outside. Let's maybe go find something else. And I think that's why they go to YouTube because they're like, this isn't Hollywood produced stuff. No. You know, I'd rather listen to uh, a couple of middle-aged guys bitch about comic books than spend my time watching a reboot of, of something I loved as a kid that I know was going to be nothing like I remember. Yeah. All right. Well, Neon, this has been, this has been a really good uh, conversation. I'm glad we had the opportunity to connect because I've been watching your channel uh, for a while now. You guys oh, have you. some really good stuff over there. I'm, I'm always, I always enjoy, especially the banter between you and Geeky, uh, Geeky Sparkles. <laughs> uh, sorry, mom. Stuff. Uh, that's, yeah, that's I know, right? I saw that uh, that art that artwork that somebody has proposed for a T-shirt design for you. Have you seen that? The oh the yeah, I mom? saw that. It's that really was pretty good. cool. Yeah, but yeah, so so uh, continued success for you and yours and. Hopefully, oh, thank you. Uh, hopefully things work out with the with the new shadow binders and whatever else you guys are working on. Clownfish TV is the channel, and uh, we will put a link in our show notes uh, so people can find you over there. And uh, hopefully, we can have you back talk some more about some of this stuff. All maybe, right. maybe after things start to calm down just a little bit. <laughs> Right. Hey, thanks, Jason. All right. Thank you. And thank all of you for being here along for the ride. And if you've got uh, comments, you can, of course, leave those and uh, share your thoughts either in the comment field or through email live from the bunker at sci fi for me.com. And remember, there are four lights. This has been a presentation of Sci Fi for Me Radio, copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.